0: That's where, you know, we could really, really do a lot better in some ways about how we communicate this, either down to the owner or to the paraprofessionals who are guiding owners um, and professionals, so the veterinarian and the veterinary technician. But by default, I mean, a lot of people go for nutrition advice. They're taking nutrition advice from the breeder that they bought their dog from. Yes. um, From the pet retailer. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on where, where that nutrition, uh, information is coming from. And as, as you just alluded to, the individualism in nutrition is hugely important. A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming.
1: Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple.
0: Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry.
1: Welcome to the podcast. This is an opportunity to uh, talk with Dr. Kate Shoveler. We are going to discuss pet nutrition, But I'm I'm glad we're here. And this is the Pet Fruit Science podcast and an opportunity to talk with experts in the field, which Dr. Shoveler certainly is. She's got a a good past of uh, both training graduate students and publishing uh, pet nutrition research. So we have the opportunity to talk today. Um, Kate, why don't you just tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are? And and maybe what's exciting you about research today?
0: Sure. Um, well, I've uh, I, I had a bit of a circuitous path into pet nutrition, but that's not unlike uh, most people in pet nutrition. Although, arguably, we we've, we've changed that trajectory a little bit with um, companion animal programs uh, globally, and 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 most importantly. Um, Probably to the listeners here in in both Canada and the U.S., there's quite an increase in the amount of academic programs that are looking at companion animal um, research. But um, I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Guelph in animal biology. um, And then I went and, and did a Ph.D. at the University of Alberta. Um, with a swine nutritionist, Ron Ball, and a human um, MD and uh, human nutritionist, Dr. Paul Penchars, uh, who was actually a a professor at the University of Toronto and a clinician at Fit Children's Hospital. And so in my PhD, we actually used the baby piglet as a model for the human infant and studied amino acid requirements and, and metabolism. But at the end of my graduate degree, um, I didn't, um, I wanted to move into less invasive research. I wanted to keep it with animals, um, and, uh, I serendipitously, um, got introduced to Dr. Gary Ga- Davenport, who at that time was at, at the Iams company and was interested in, in measuring amino acid requirements and, um. Uh, through contacts with him, um, PNG Pet Care uh, sponsored my postdoctoral fellowship, um, where we transferred uh, isotopic um, techniques into the dog from what we had been doing in pigs and humans, and um, and then from there I went uh, into the industry for almost eight years before returning back to academia in 2015. So. I think what's exciting is that we're seeing companion animal research funded at unprecedented levels. um, And we're seeing a much greater transparency in terms of uh, the research generated and how that's going to affect our path forward, not only in the pet food industry, but in the whole food industry.
1: Well, that is exciting. And the industry allows um, that, that advancement or supports that advancement, uh, the funding uh, you are getting is often from industry funding, I think.
0: Yeah, I'm well, as a Canadian um, uh, faculty member, I have some different opportunities than my collaborators in uh, the US and my collaborators in Europe. Um, so I do actually carry what's called an insert discovery grant, which is, uh, completely agnostic to, um, any part of industry. Um, and so in that, um, uh, stream of research, we, uh, that was actually the co-host, uh, your co-host, Dr. Julia Pizzali. uh, she was my first, um, PhD student on my NCERC discovery and she really got the indicator amino acid oxidation technique uh working in the cat and if you follow her publications that are coming you'll see how really difficult uh that was because cats are cats so i do have on, on industry, non-industry funding as well
1: well that's great and uh, of course a good success for you in, in talking with uh, dr bazali julia she uh She's an excellent research scientist, and I had to say she succeeded where I and others have failed. That is not a small task to do what she completed. It's a difficult and great uh, task and an opportunity to see uh, inside the amino acid systems in, in a different way, a better way. So as you think of all this this support that's coming in, what excites you about applications? Where, where You're an expert in amino acid nutrition. Is it Is that what excites you or or where do you think uh sort of the the fire is in this research today
0: oh where is the fire well that's i can get pretty fired up about anything um that's really interesting and takes a different approach um so i'm not just curious about nutrition i'm really curious about physiology and and so maybe one thing um that I'm really excited about is uh, my colleague, uh, uh, Joni Verbrugge and I um, joined forces in a, uh, it was a Wind Feline Foundation, now it's Every Cat Foundation. um, we got funding um, for uh, back-to-back studies where we looked at frequency of feeding um, in the cat, but I'm really interested in understanding a lot more about how we manage our dogs and cats and how that has an effect. So we're so quick to just look at the composition of the food, Um, but when are you feeding the food? How many times a day are you feeding that food? What else is your animal exposed to that alters their metabolic response? Um, How do you manage your cat or your dog um, as, as a member of your family, that can create either really good physiological outcomes or really poor physiological outcomes. But so, everyone's
1: everyone's screaming at us. What what do you want us to do? The the meal frequency, the meal size, the the. Do you have recommendations, or is this an area research we just need to wait for?
0: Well, yeah, we we started we. We think that there might be something there, but the the um the one thing that's really obvious is how flexible physiology is. And even the cat who's largely inflexible, um, can really adjust because of their personalities. It's 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 true. They're they're kind of a... well, I always ask the question, do you really think they're domesticated? Um, or have Which they just
1: domesticated.
0: Yeah, they're very good at manipulating us. I think so, um, but I think I, uh, you know, what our research did did suggest, and um, the first published research was in um, in PLOS one um, uh, last year. I'm trying to remember what year it was there for a second. Um, and what we did see, and this was in uh, young adult cats. So you know, very flexible um, in terms of metabolism and how you feed them. But in the cats fed once a day, what we did see is in terms of their satiety, their satiety hormone response to a meal, suggested actually that once a day feeding may provide a greater satiety. Um, but what I was really interested in is that when you feed them once a day, you actually see a significant meal response um in the amino acid concentration in contrast if you fed them multiple days and uh, or multiple times in a day and what i mean by that is if you feed them multiple times a day their plasma amino acid concentrations don't don't vary very much but if you feed them once a day you see a more profound amino acid response so very similar to glycemic response if if you will so low is important and that might be important for muscle wasting right because there is, a, there is a burden in terms of stimulating protein synthesis. And so maybe um, either one larger meal or you know, something else that I'm interested in is, should we be splitting up our macronutrients, right? Should cats get a big bolus of protein in one meal and a bolus of fat and carb in another? I'm, I'm making this up because I, I don't even have a, a really good... Uh, rationale for the carbs and, and fat in a different time, but the protein could stimulate muscle protein synthesis
1: to a greater that. extent. It's fascinating. I might have to go back and look at some old data. You know, we published a paper once where we had a a high protein bowl, a high fat bowl, and a high carb bowl, and let the cats and dogs select between the three of them, sort of providing that opportunity for a a if you will. And I never looked at. Are they nibbling in all three because they 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 balance their nutrition, of course? Or were they going out and eating all at one? I um, may have to go back and look.
0: Yeah, well, it would be interesting to understand if that if you were doing that ad libitum. No that, that, um, Yeah, it would be interesting to see if they change their selection based on time of day. It'd be super interesting.
1: I have that data. I should re re look. Yeah. Um, Well, what was most interesting to me was the fact that, you know, cats did not choose. You know, they had a chance to eat like a 55% protein food. That, That was not their mix they chose. How do you feel about the high protein, high fat, high carb? You know, lots of foods out there with lots of different answers to what's optimum. Do you have an opinion on it? What do you think?
0: Yeah, I think, well there's there's kind of opposing forces here right so we have to balance the fact that protein at really high amounts just increases nitrogen excretion by the animal of course yeah and so what is what is our commitment um to optimize the amount and the quality of the protein um, to limit the dog and cat's impact on the environment. And if nobody's thinking about it, um, there's a significant impact, a significant contribution of our dogs and cats to nitrogenous waste. So if we think about what we're doing in ag animal today, um, I'm sitting in the Netherlands. So this is a prime example where they're trying to limit, right. They're trying to limit, um, the nitrogen and the phosphorus that's coming from animal agriculture and it's reapplication onto the land. We have, uh, I think we have an obligation to do that in dog and cat nutrition as well. But on the flip side, there's really good evidence, um, coming out, not as much in dog and cat Wait, I'm, I'm on a path to, to look at some of this, but, um, that our amino acid requirements if, if you look at our minimum requirements in ag animals where we maximize growth and minimize nitrogen excretion that's great if you have you know a, a growing pig um, and and they don't have an immune challenge but if they do have an immune challenge they perform better if they're getting supplemental if they had been getting supplemental amino acids So then when we think about that paradox, what do we do then? Because we also want to optimize the health and well-being of our dogs and cats, which might mean not minimal protein and amino acid requirements, maybe higher. So I think this comes back to that balance again, right, of of understanding what the risks and benefits to both are and then managing them a little bit better. Um, Maybe-
1: Maybe providing it with a little more selection to the individual pet, um, you know, rather than you know, as a nutritionist, we 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 feed populations and you make these uh, population decisions. Um, but optimum for each pet—that's
0: well to to that point, Dennis. You know, it 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 has shocked me um, in some of the survey data that has come out and and. Whole bunch of different literature, but that some people are feeding their dogs is is what I've seen, and I'm going to say that it probably then applies to cats, the exact same diet for years. Um, and there is this is counterintuitive to all the other nutrition literature. Say, for example, in human nutrition, where we appreciate that there's diversity in diet selection why are we not providing that to dogs and cats how would that change their health and well-being their and and so it might not just be changing what they eat to meet some kind of metabolic metabolic demand maybe it's to behavioral demands right i mean there's a myriad of of different options uh here that have not been explored in pet nutrition
1: and, and as Julie and I were talking, you know, one of those change in options is certainly change in form and processing that, that certainly influences these uh, characteristics we're talking about. So lots to look at, so it'll be kind of fun. You know, you have recently done a, a lot of interesting uh, work with energy, and we've chatted about that. I think there's some overlap with some work that I've been doing. What do you think about energy and how we think of pet supplying pet energy? Is there advances out there? Should we be going to net energy? Um, what, what do you think?
0: Well, let, let's, let's start with um, how using modified Atwaters, I do not understand why this is, has not changed for the North American pet industry. I, no one has to show anymore that this isn't an inappropriate algorithm to calculate energy density in it, and well, it's assuming talk, it's right some of the time, even if it's stopped. Come on. Yeah, well, I think even if we went, um, there are far there are far better algorithms for energy density. So I think we have that problem. Sure. Right. Um, but that's still to your point. That's metabolizable energy. That's not that's not net energy. And I definitely think that we will learn more by determining net energy um, uh, than anything else. So we're working on those algorithms right now in collaboration um, uh, with some scientists at INRA. So. Um, at uh, the at an institute, uh, research institute in France um, and where the net energy system was first developed and so I and I'm hopeful. Hope right I, I'm over speaking
1: but the, certainly the Dutch have done net energy for oh for, uh, a long long time for other species
0: well their calorimetry their indirect calorimetry um uh, facilities here are are amazing. I haven't been to the ones at INRA, um, but uh, the ones the ones here are quite quite impressive. So, uh, but we're we're we just finished looking at um, we did a protein titration uh, to evaluate diet the impact of dietary protein on net energy, and uh, the next one we're going to do is fiber, and then I think you know that probably after that um, I think fat and carbohydrate titration to understand um, how to use those values in net energy algorithms for cats is, is likely worn. Well, and the other thing we should talk about here is the
1: variation associated with pet intake is greater than any of the variation of these models. So we've got this whole thing about, again, how we, how we feed the individual that really, really pushes a nutritionist, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, that one's, that's where, you know, we could really, really do a lot better in some ways about how we communicate this either down to the owner or to the paraprofessionals who are guiding owners um, and professionals. So the veterinarian and the veterinary technician. But by default, I mean, a lot of people go for nutrition advice. They're taking nutrition advice from the breeder that they bought their dog from. Yes. Um, from the pet retailer, um, I mean, the list goes on and on where where that nutrition uh, information is coming from, and as as you just alluded to, the individualism in nutrition is hugely important. Um, cats are a great example. Multi multi cat households, right? Where yes, people will have they're feeding the same food but two cats behave completely differently and one's morbidly obese and the other one's lean and active. Yeah. So how do you, how do you manage that?
1: No, it's, it's a struggle. I think for many pet, you know, pet owners and, and we think about, well, you know, there's kind of expensive, but nice options. If you, if you end up individualized feeding, which is certainly possible. And you see those kind of great toys and things that, the pets have to work with to uh, to 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 eat and that that seems like a good option
0: yeah i i agree i think that there's going to be don't you think that there's going to be sensor i mean we already have sensor technologies available um we're already applying them in in research at least to all of our pets
1: are, Yeah, absolutely you know Aligned with the individual, the individual pet is eating an individual meal in the research setting that I work with there at Hills Pet Nutrition.
0: Yeah, and and we need to be working with owners who have the need for those technologies to match with feeding, and the technology is there. We can do all this now at a cost. Um, Yeah, at a cost, uh, but. You get some good computer engineers and you have feeders and you have telemeters on your on your dog or cat. We could exactly. probably do a lot better than we are today. And we could probably control those feeders better for the owner as well, right?
1: No, there's a lot to gain for the pet there. And and as you know, I, I think that pet uh, interaction in the home is... Is really a great benefit for the owner as well. So if the pet's doing well, that's that's a value for everybody around, which is good. Yeah. And one reason we like pets. Or, well, we can't go by without just sort of touching on amino acids. You know, we we're going to have, I think, maybe an in-depth discussion about amino acids sometime, uh, because this this problem you you mentioned earlier on that. Well, what do we feed to? Where's our end point? You know the the one and only although it's just it's just classic research uh longevity trial that I know of where they were feeding the dogs at lower energy intake than the controls they'd live longer they were healthier they were leaner so they they didn't have the loss associated with arthritis so associated with uh, with obesity of course but but they had less lean I mean the, those healthier longer living pets were, were at a lower lean uh, um, and, and so you think, wow, I, I kind of like feeding to maximum lean, um, but maybe that's not always the best, uh, and and we want to feed to optimum health at some level, and amino acids are so tied to that. What what do you think?
0: Yeah, well, I think maybe where I would start, and and not just to pump my own research and, and the approaches that I use, but <laughs> um, the... If you look at the, so if you just typed in the lysine requirement in swine, um, I haven't done it for a while. Well, um, I'm tired
1: of doing that. There's a hundred papers on the lysine requirement Oh, swine.
0: right. But in dogs and cats, you can you count know. them on less than, they're less than five. And for some amino acids, there is no good empirical estimate of the amino acid requirement taboo when you look at for example both AFCO and FdiaF, they're based on amino acid requirements that were developed using either growth or nitrogen balance which are both both good to measure amino acid requirements in growing animals bad to measure amino acid requirements in adult animals and there's all there's nothing on senior animals um, really out there in terms of empirical measurement of the requirement. And what I mean by that is a titration of the amino acid with really smart diet design. It's very important that your diets are designed correctly when you go into amino acid requirement studies. And it means that only the amino acid of interest can change in that diet. Nothing else can change because it all affects metabolism And so if you want to use, um, if you want to do a really good job, just add amino acid. So when we, um, when I was with, um, so I started that methodology when I was in my postdoctoral fellowship that was sponsored by Procter & Gamble Pet Care. And then after that, I went to work for Procter & Gamble. And over the eight years that I was there, we measured um, all the indispensable amino acid requirements in small, medium and large breed dogs, of which the majority we've now published. But what was really consistent was that the amino acid requirements were above and and not by small amount, by somewhere between 15 and 45 to 50 percent greater than AFCO requirements or the recommended allowance in the National Research Council's nutrient requirements for dogs and cats. This is completely in line with if you think about something like human nutrition. If you look at the amino acid requirements that were published in 1985 in Human Nutrition, those requirements have gone up steadily from iteration to iteration to iteration of the amino acid requirements um, for humans at every life stage. So it's not, it shouldn't be surprising that we should also probably increase the minimal amino acid requirement on a regulatory basis in my not so humble it.
1: When you were talking about amino acids and let's let's jump back into that, the thing that that just sort of amazes me is, as you know, Pet Nutrition spends a lot of money uh, trying to hit the optimum balance, again, for that population we're feeding in amino acid nutrition. And so clearly your work is valuable in bringing those anchors out of what, here's a minimum. And I think the technique has value. Certainly everyone knows, and perhaps not everyone listening, but nitrogen balance has, has tremendous benefit within its space. But it's not so beneficial in looking at the requirements for mature animals that are in nitrogen balance. Um, small differences associated with what you'd like to have to find that, that uh, break point are, are, are just, just not the right assay for that. So for what I have done is looking at these long-term studies where you have a specific uh, amino acid uh, balance and you say look I'm accreting a nitrogen or I'm having this great immune response or or even that that I can measure these other sort of protein influence outcomes and and so I must be okay but that's not that's not that's not an endpoint I mean that's not a break so so we need something else and and I'm so glad you're working on it and I hope you can get the funding to to continue that work. It's valuable work. It's important work.
0: Yeah. I I feel fairly confident um, uh, largely because uh, Julia was the student on my first round of my discovery grant so I've completed all the work which um, is usually your biggest thing to get funding again. But then I'm also uh, pretty lucky in the fact that um, uh, Champion Pet Foods stepped in on the on the dog side, and they supported a a huge meta-analysis where we took digestibilities of all these ingredients and we calculated the equivalent of a digestible indispensable amino acid score, which is what is being proposed as the gold standard for amino acid um, uh, bioavailability, Um, And then ultimately the Diaz uh, scores proteins, so you can understand what's an excellent source, a good source or a source of protein. And so we started uh, to generate those and and James Templeman was a PhD student and a postdoctoral fellow of mine who who did that work. And that was published last year in, in Journal of Animal Science. And we're now building to see if we look at the ileal digestibility of the main ingredients in a dog food, and then we look at the ileal digestibility of the amino acids in a complete dog food. Can we predict or even get close to predicting um, that final product content? That would be really, really valuable for the industry. And we're a little bit closer to having a metric so we can get beyond. And this is a huge pet peeve of mine, Dennis, is that I cannot believe that the claim that um, animal protein first or chicken real chicken as the first ingredient carries the clout that it does and i would like to put a solid metric behind uh protein quality rather than have this kind of funny marketing uh juxtaposition between the companies
1: well i'm so glad you brought it up because as a nutritionist we know that the individual uh, government-regulated name for an ingredient does not necessarily predict either the quality of that ingredient or the quality of the pet food that it, it is uh, first in or, or containing in. And of course, consumers want to know about their pet food, and so they're trying to, to use available information. But the value of what you're describing is actually a sort of metric of quality of protein. That would have that would have a, an objective uh, value.
0: Yep. Yeah. I. I, I mean, it, it would make the competition a lot more equal, wouldn't it?
1: Well, at least it would have a standard for the competition, which which is intuitively good. Um, you know, yeah. as we're here, we, one of the things that people in pet food industry have talked quite a bit about, and I know you have had research in is this protein quality associated with specific disease states, for example, cardiomyopathy in the dog. Would you like to talk a little bit about some of the research you've uh, published about how this, uh, this problem might be associated with protein nutrition? And, 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 you know, it's obviously very complex and it's genetic and, and there's a lot of components, but I'd love to hear your, your take on it.
0: Yeah, I mean, so we we really kind of focus the work that we've done um, or have done over the last three years since the original three four years since the original FDA warning was made, um, focused on sulfur amino acid metabolism and and what can support uh, taurine status. Um, and and most recently, we we published um, a really robust uh, comparison of um, grain containing as the control, and then a stepwise increase in whole pulses, um, and all of that balanced um, with um, pea starch. The in my in my opinion. I think that what has really been poorly done in this arena, and we were trying to kind of tease apart, is, is it a ingredient problem or is it a nutrient problem? And what's really, really critical when you want to ask questions about an ingredient is all of your nutrients. So if you want to have, say you want to have four different ingredients that you want to compare, the only way that you can compare those ingredients just the ingredient is to have the same nutrient targets among all your test diets it's animal nutrition experimental design 101 101. right extremely (laughs) important but we're seeing a whole bunch of different things in the literature that i think are starting to become confusing for people and indeed we know that if you have a sulfur amino acid deficiency that is a risk factor for the development of dilated cardiomyopathy, as one. And I'm just going to focus on the amino acids. There's a lot of other dietary potentially um, uh, dietary contributors to DCM as well that we haven't investigated, nor have many other people in a in a controlled manner. But I think in this case, indeed, uh, in in my opinion, I think if you're if you have a surfeit of amino acids and you provide a good quality protein, um, then the use of pulses is not likely a risk factor for the development of DCM. What caused DCM in this very wide bracket of products? We can start to, we. I have a million ideas as to, to what that can be. Um, and you want the top five, or would you rather just not? Well, one one thing in the epidemiological um, work that I haven't seen is whether those dogs are actually eating to the feeding requirements. Oh, they're not. They're not. So the first thing is, is that your amino acid requirements are not a... They're not required on a percentage of the diet like we present them. They're actually required per kilo body weight. So if you reduce feed intake, you have an amino acid deficiency. And so I think I think that might might be a leading one. Um, I have huge questions about antioxidant supply and whether those differ between uh, whether the stability um, differs between different formats of diets as well. Because I don't think that. Literature exists, or at least from what we've looked there, for it, it, it some hasn't. Some people might not publish it. Well, and there and there lies the rub of the: if it's not published, how did you They're know available. it could be a problem? Right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd love, I'd, I'd, I'd love for all of us to stop and and commit to going back into our coffers and publishing everything we actually owe it to the dogs and cats that we've done research on to but it, publish it all It fades over the
1: horizon i have some work that i think my company something that no longer even exists anymore i should have published i feel so badly that that that's right i i i feel that responsibility of we 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 take really good care of our pets right i mean these pets live very long very good lives but it's kind of what they do for a living and to not use that
0: yeah is a shame right. yeah i agree anyway
1: if we solved so, all the problems. one, so one we, last
0: one maybe yeah, what we might look at maybe the last one is um uh we're we're working on a very short communication right now based on a series of diets that we had where um we had a grain containing diet and we had a pulse containing diet. We had them manufactured at the same time using similar ingredients, using all the same processing techniques at the same plant. So they were all bagged the same, they all shipped the same, they were all stored exactly the same. All of our field pea diets molded and our grain diets did not. So, it- well, what was your
1: percent moisture?
0: Uh, no, they were all. Um, there was greater water activity in the field pea containing diet, um, indeed. But they were all dried to about ninety-two uh, percent dry matter or about eight percent moisture. And and the the water
1: activity differences were based on the pulses. That surprises me. That's interesting.
0: They're they're um, hygroscopic pulses, what? so they're. I, I'm I'm not definitely not a molding expert and and you know, I think I think probably something that this podcast would benefit from is is that discussion about about mycotoxins. I do not think people appreciate um, what ingestion of mycotoxins, um, can do. Uh, there, and the re- only reason I knew about it, Dennis, is because it's a huge deal for horses, and I teach horse nutrition as well. Because horses can't vomit, so once they eat something that's contaminated with mold, they're in big, big trouble.
1: Yeah. Well, fascinating. You know, Kate, w- there's so many things we we can talk about. I'm I'm interested in it. I hope we can chat again and maybe we'll we'll figure out uh, a couple other uh, routes to discuss these things because it's just fascinating and I, I hope that people can appreciate your wisdom and understanding of the area because it's it's significant i wonder what they might you know if you had a favorite pet food nutrition related book a resource if 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 the audience would say you know i'd love to talk to you, but I can't get can I read something. what would what would you suggest?
0: Hmm. which book would I suggest? Well, I probably have to uh, out of out of contributing to it and the fact that I use it for my course, I do use uh, canine and feline nutrition, which uh, Linda Case uh, edited and and um, the Iams company originally. Um, used it scientists to, uh, to produce so I I think that that's a really good um uh kind of overview of pet nutrition um that uh, that that I use to teach students um if if you're really hardcore uh and you love science and you love metabolism then uh, the book that I probably use the most is Metabolism at a Glance with all of the all the metabolic pathways. But I really like Metabolic Pathways, so there's that. So those would be uh, more basic, and then um, more scientific would be Metabolism at a Glance.
1: No, those are good ones. Um, I wonder if you could tell us. I, I sort of have a, a pet question I like to ask people, which is you've had success, you've had success setting up teams. What, what do you look for with individuals that, that maybe brings that success uh, to the whole unit they're working in?
0: Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. I think that I've whittled it down to two things that I always look for, and that's positivity and motivation um, as a combination. Um, and then second, and probably I look for first, to be honest, is curiosity. Um, so I find that if I have curious people and by, if someone's curious, not only do they desperately want to learn, but they tend to be very open to hearing new ideas. Um, and thinking about them critically, uh, those would, those would be t- the, the. The two things that I look for, uh, definitely in trainees.
1: That's fascinating. Can I ask the flip question? So, what makes someone fail? what's What's the critical attribute or attributes that no, that's not a success?
0: Yeah. Well, I think it probably all, and 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 it's definitely um, my uh, an area where I don't deal very well is um, is with people who are motivated. Uh, maybe the more insulting or judgmental way to describe that would be uh, lazy. Um, that's that's a complete killer uh, for me. and I, I have a really difficult time managing uh, people when they when they fall in into those kind of ways of working. I work great on a motivated, positive team. I can really drive results. But if I have one person on the team who doesn't want to do the work, is constantly criticizing everything, is negative with uh, not only the work that we're doing, but negative towards the people they're working on, I, I that is a very bad version of Kate that comes out.
1: Yeah. No, those are hard things. and. And as leaders, I'm sure you deal with us. We've all dealt with, you know, you don't always get the optimal person. Sometimes the person you thought you hired isn't actually that. So so we run together There's there's lots we could talk about, but I think for today we should be done. And thank you very much. I hope we can chat again.
0: We will be chatting again. <laughs> <laughs> I know we will, yes. In fact, if we have a fist, I want to have a couple more questions.
1: <laughs> but I think we're done, um, so thanks again, and uh, it was great talking to
0: you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Dennis, and, um, and I look forward to our next conversation.